It's on now. Hello, and welcome to episode 10. 10. Of 10. Creative Moonlighting. <laughs> Today we have a special guest that's actually going to take my chair because Bodie and I need to go take our five mile uh, daily quarantine well, we walk. We talked about finally doing some specific. Uh, you know, more more specialized talks in terms of different creative things. Today's specialty is going to be dialect, writing and dialect. So the perfect person to talk about dialect is none other than... Shirley Thornton, my mom, who <laughs> so, taught English for 30 years. Yeah, and, she, she taught me in seventh grade. Yeah, she taught me through my whole life. And she taught both of my siblings and all my cousins and everybody's dog. Yeah. So <laughs> any any writing bones that are in our in our bodies in this family uh, got started there. So she's going to give us a. So notice I don't have a Filipino accent. <laughs> she didn't take away your Filipino oh, accent, okay. did she? <laughs> we don't have a Southern accent either. I don't think. You don't think so until you go somewhere else where and then you other say y'all, yeah, yeah, and then people look at you. Funny. Yeah, they really look at me funny because I'm Filipino, and then I say y'all, and then they go what? Yeah. So today okay. is all about um, dialect. Yeah, dialect. Whether you're writing books or screenplays or any of those things, at some point you're going to have to write the characters' voices, and so. Um, we wanted to go and kind of do a, a, a deep dive in terms of talking about specifically how to write a, a dialect from a certain part of the country. All right. So I am going to get out of this seat and let her take my spot while Bodie and I go get some exercise and you guys explore dialect. Morning, mom. Good morning, son. So you've been here all weekend. We've talked multiple times on the phone. We've talked several times uh, while you've been here. I noticed you've got all your books and notes with you. Um, I guess really the reason why this came up is we've been working on a story for years now. And it's a story that is set in the South. Um, and it's now become a screenplay that's being, you know, kicked around. Uh, and we're really at the very end of it and we're trying to go back and put the last touches and to make sure that the voices of the characters carry on these specific tone and style and dialect that, that we really want to stay true to in this particular uh, story. So if you have anything just to introduce, maybe you could just introduce what your background is on any of this stuff and how you kind of kind of came to be so... Um, uh, so interested in specific dialects in different parts of the country and how those change and, and over time, especially. Okay, I guess what I'll do is I'll start with just saying that as a, as a Southerner, somebody who grew up, spent the first nine years of her life in Oklahoma, um, I didn't even notice that I had an accent or that I used certain expressions or that there was any kind of a dialectal change at all from anybody. Yeah. So dialectal how, change. How, how, you, how you talked was how you talked That's, and you didn't think right, it was anything. Right, and I didn't, and because everybody around me spoke the same way, I didn't realize there was a difference. And, and I, what really, I guess, made me start studying it when I was in college in my third year, um, I had a professor named Dr. Haltrist. He was from Germany. He had a very thick accent. 
And he oftentimes- You can keep going. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna make this mic go a little closer to you. Okay. There you go. That way you can get right to it. And I had a difficult time understanding him and I, I never said anything. I would never be that rude, but somebody did say it to him. And he said, you know, sir, I really have a hard time understanding you. And he goes, and I like, and I also have a hard time understanding you. Right. Because by then I was living in Texas. And so I'd, I'd lived in three places, Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Texas, all in the South. And it was then that I began to think about the way we all sounded and how it was. And I was a real fan of Sherlock Holmes. And Sherlock Holmes, if you've ever read his his stories, uh -huh. you know, the stories about Sherlock Holmes, he was a master of listening to in, in England. You know, was it a Cockney accent? Was it, you know, where was and he could p pinpoint where yeah. a person originated yeah. simply by listening to that accent. And when you talk about writing that into something, it requires that you look at at um, pronunciation. That word in and of itself, I had always pronounced as pronunciation. Right. And it is absolutely wrong. But in the South, many people it's say It's spelled that to look like pronunciation, but it's no. pronounced. Oh, it's not. No, how's it, 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 how's it, it spelled? It has none right in the middle of it. N -U -N. Oh, N-U-N. Yeah, so it's pronunciation. Okay. And so that was one of the first words that got my attention because I had said pronunciation in that class with Dr. Haltrish. Oh, and he he got oh, that. Oh boy, he corrected <laughs> me right away and embarrassed me. And and he even said that I, I typically, I had him for a, a technical report writing class and I was committing a, a huge offense in that I was writing the way I spoke. Yep. He said I could reserve that for fiction writing. Okay. But what? Wait, I, he did not want you to write the way you spoke? Oh, no, because it's because no. it was... It, what style of writing were you doing? He, well, it was just, I was writing colloquially. So he okay. wanted me to write with a formal tone. Okay. But what class was this? this? That was a technical report. That was, okay, class. technical report. And I had, yeah. him, I had him for five different English classes. So you can't be throwing your dialect into that type of writing. No, he writing. also taught me in a class, uh, I took it, I didn't have to take it, but I took it because I was, I thought this is amazing stuff. I was really interested in how language comes to be mm -hmm. and how it changes over time. Mm -hmm. And so I took his class called the history of the English language. Uh, it was one of the most eye-opening classes I'd ever taken. And it really inspired me to just study etymologies to understand where words originate and why certain people in certain areas use them and other people don't. For example, in the South, we call that thing that we fry chicken in a frying pan, we call it a skillet. Okay. But in other places, they don't even address it. They just call it a pan, or they might call it a, I don't know, I don't know what else they'd call it. But it, for me, those two things meant something. Um, there were other words that I began to see weren't the same because the more when you go to college, you're, you're, you're now going to school with people who didn't grow up in your area. Yeah, they may have come from an entirely different part of the country or, or outside the, the country, yeah. Right, so I began to hear those differences and I was really intrigued by it. Well, then when I took his class on um, prose writing, that's where he began to teach me about voice. Okay. How do you, how do you achieve voice and make your characters sound like the people that you intend them to be? Okay which is the topic of the day. Yeah. For you. The, yes, yeah. Right. And and you gave me a um a formula for that 
when I started teaching language arts and you were, you used it with teaching seventh grade kids. Um, and I remember, I, I don't, I don't remember what the act is. The acronym was smart. <laughs> I don't know. Was it, what was the acronym? It you was smile, smile, smile. Mm -hmm. It was smile. And that stands for S similes, metaphors, idioms, lively language and elaboration. Okay. So, and that, if you have all of those things, weaved into your writing now you have what we call voice yes okay and, and it, it comes in lots of different forms so it comes in the way you let your characters pronounce words mm -hmm. it comes in the the vocabulary that your characters use mm -hmm. and it comes in even their syntax the the order in which they yeah that's a words. big one that's a big one so that whenever you're this is the one time when you should put yourself into the head of the character. If you're not Southern, you're going to have a very difficult time doing writing a Southern character. Right. If you're not female, you're going to have a difficult time writing a female character. That's why um, Theodore Dreiser was, he was considered such an amazing writer because he his characters, his main characters were women. Yeah. And yet he seemed to have had, had tapped into the mind of a woman. Yeah. And Which even, is not at all no. normal or natural to the average guy, no. you know? Right. So Shakespeare could do it. Yeah. And it was also, for example, let's take an expression that we use in the South that Southern women use. Okay. That expression is bless her heart. Okay. <laughs> bless her heart. It sounds so sweet and it sounds so endearing. Yeah. And it's not. It means yeah. she is an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like the blonde joke kind of thing, but it's but it's you're being even you're beating even more around the bush. That's something else I notice about especially when you're writing uh dialogue or screenplays is that um for years in acting class it was always well you're gonna as the actor, you're gonna have to figure out what's underneath this line, what the subtext of this line is, because I promise you the writer didn't write it for it to be or mean exactly what it looks like it means. It actually means something else. So take bless your heart as an example. It sounds like you said this, it sounds like a really positive, uh, good, sweet thing. And underneath it, it means, it could mean anything, but it could usually means you're stupid or, or, or special. Um, but that's something I noticed about Southerners in general. And then I also was thinking, you know, Southerners are because they want to be polite. They don't want to offend somebody, but they still got to say what they got to say. So they have these kind of coded phrases that that mean something else and sound OK on the surface. It sort of allows them to, to, to code or hide what it is they're saying. Of course, if you're from the South, we all know these sayings and so we know when someone says bless bless your heart that does not a pot that was not a compliment um the british are also very good at at coding their phrases in a different way you know they they have their own version of that and so kind of that was what i wanted to make sure we we also talked about was how these phrases get coded in different dialects i guess is, is a good way of saying it and I'm just gonna, hey, let's move that just closer to you. Okay. Just move it right okay. up so that you're just about an inch or two away. So what really, I think to talk about this, you really have to go back to um, the first people who came to this country. Okay. Because it's this is kind of an interesting uh, idea. The, 
within just a few years, um, right before the Constitution okay. was ratified, there were about 4 million people living between the Appalachian Mountains and the East Coast. Okay. And these people typically, about 90% of them lived there, or 95% of them lived there. Of that 95%, 90% of them were from Northern Europe. And they were English speakers, typically. You, you did have some Dutch who came in and you had a few French, but it did not affect anything. It was the English who, who came and brought the language. And it is that language and that particular migration that made the biggest difference. Now we had, it's kind of broken into three different um, immigration periods. Mm -hmm. That one, which takes you from colonial times up through the writing of the constitution, Beyond that, it takes you up to about the Civil War, and then from the Civil War up through the um, the Gold Rush days, which showed, and what you can tell by just those dates, it's you can see the people moving. Okay. And as they moved, what happened was the groups that came in, some settled in the Pennsylvania area, the Pennsylvania Dutch, and they brought a certain kind of English with them. And then the English brought theirs, everybody brought a different kind of English. And when they settled into those areas, they then began to migrate west. And as they did, they had to create words. When they encountered something that they didn't know, they had to have a word. And if the Native Americans didn't produce the word or give them a word for it, then they had to make it up. So they, they started changing that very basic part of a language, and that is the vocabulary. Now, the interesting part was the English back home in the native Great Britain, they weren't changing anything. So it didn't take long for two things to happen. One, and I say they weren't changing, that's not true. They weren't, they were changing things, but they were changing the way a language naturally changes. They weren't adding vocabulary. Right. But what they were Because they doing, weren't moving around. No, but they were changing pronunciations. Okay. They were, they were changing spellings. They were changing the meanings of words. Even. Okay, so... And I don't want to throw you off track. I want you to stay on that track. But an example of that is that a re is there a reason like when we spell advertise here and they spell advertise there, there is a difference, right? They use an S uh, or how how there's there's certain theater theater the way the yeah, R before E there favorite right dropping the U and Noah Webster made those calls for us yeah and, okay. and maybe advertise is a bad one but I've seen it uh, realize. We do Realize. it with a Z, they do it with an S, don't they? Yes, and even okay. the, okay, so that's that plays right into what I'm going to tell you, okay. and that is the way we say either and neither mm -hmm. is the old English way of saying Now they it. say either and neither? They changed it okay. to either and neither, but we didn't. Okay. So we're still, and think about this, when our, when in colonial times, we were speaking Shakespearean English. Yeah. Those were the days of Shakespeare and Milton. And so when we, when you think that we, why did they change it again? The English, yeah, they just decided that's how they. Over time, it's like anything okay. else. They, they it wasn't to like yeah, it was there was it wasn't, it wasn't like, to run counter to us or anything. Yeah. It's just that that's the nature of just language. kind of what yeah, language it does, does happen. Yeah, but we were changing word like we were, we were adding creating vocab. new words and adding them to the English language. And some of our words are definitely rooted in Native American dialects, right? Sure. Because sure. we didn't know what else to call it. They would call it with something. And uh, and then we would take it and kind of a, whatever we call, you know, make it fit to our own dialect. And so now you get a whole new word. Yeah. For example, the word deer. Yeah. D-E-E-R. Uh -huh. The word deer 
simply meant a four-legged animal okay. that lived in the wild. Uh -huh. Not a domesticated animal, but a wild animal. Okay. And we have so many different names, specific names for deer, and that which is what we typically use. Turns out in northern Russia, they have over a thousand names for caribou. Okay. Because wow, they they see the complete the the little differences oh. in them. The Inuit people, the Eskimo people, have this is an unbelievable thing. They have over fifty words for snow. <laughs> a South Texan has exactly one. Well, yeah, we call it. Yeah, right. And everyone, even if we see it as ice, we're probably going to call it snow. Right. Right. We don't. And and so when you're when you're talking about voice and achieving voice, you have to be careful of the words that you're using. Even just the choice of the word that you write into a certain spot could be totally false. Right. Yeah. Because if it's not used in the South and yeah. you're writing a Southern character, yeah. then it's not going to take long for a Southern audience member to, pick to go, up on that. that's stupid. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. And it's it's just the same when you come to a, an actor that isn't necessarily from a certain place. You know, I was listening to something recently and they were deconstructing uh uh, Boston movies, movies that have been made in Boston, and and they were basically judging whether or not these actors uh, pulled off the the accent because it's such a specific accent. And and usually what happens is when people do a Boston accent, they kind of make a caricature of it. They make it so heavy and over the top. Apparently, I haven't even been to Boston, but apparently it's usually not that heavy. It's it, it. There are certain words you definitely hear it on, but it's not every phrase that comes out of their mouths. So when they did it, it was like, well, we could tell that so-and-so is definitely not from Boston. They were doing the Boston bit uh, versus the people like, you know, say Matt Damon or Ben Affleck or uh, Mark Wahlberg. They, they were from there or from that area. And so when they do it, it's a much more naturalized version of it and it come and it plays, you know, but what the, the new rule with these Boston things is like people, if Boston people make a movie about Boston and you come in and they want you to work as the actor, if you can't do the right accent, they just tell you to play it straight. Don't even do an accent because it makes it worse when you try, you know? Well, and that works because what we do know, and this is also thanks to Noah Webster and to McGuffey's Eclectic Readers and to public education, we have a standard language. This is the only country that that actually achieved that because as our people migrated across the country, they carried those textbooks. Okay. They carried that that standard. What would you call that? Would you call it standard English? Do you call it American language? It, it's standard American English. Okay. And because we did that, we also retained more of the original Shakespearean English that everybody else dropped. Let me give you a word. The word is gotten. Gotten. We use gotten in America and uh -huh. we use it regularly. Gotten is old. It's very old and they don't use it in England anymore. If I said gotten to 12 year olds today, there's a good chance if I said that in one of my classes, there's a good chance one of them would challenge me and say that it's not a word. Now, how do I respond to that? If that it, it is definitely a word. Okay. It's definitely the proper conjugation has gotten. Yeah. And I'll give you another one. This is just, again, not to throw you off, but um, when they say someone was hanged, mm -hmm. it is someone hanged. was hanged, yes. right? Yes. The kids always want to say hung. You got you were mm -hmm. hung. That's not correct. It's not correct. You can hang a picture and a picture can be hung but a person must be hanged because the definition is different, which takes you to the other part. 
when you're learning vocabulary, you need to use it because it's different. A word may mean something completely different in another part of the country than it means in the South. Just as that phrase, bless her heart does. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, if you say bless her heart up in Minnesota, maybe they actually really actually, mean something. Yeah. You oh, know. poor thing. Yeah. Bless her heart. And the sarcasm in the South, because we are in the South, remember there were lots, it was an agrarian society. There were lots of wealthy people who had plantations, mm -hmm. who actually took on the, you know, that idea of being in a mansion and that idea of keeping that social life alive. That was Southern. Yeah. That was not Northern. That was Southern. And it's funny how it's kind of flip-flop. The Northerners oftentimes look at the Southerners as hicks because of the accent, because of the drawl. And it's, it's as, as if, if you have a drawl, then it's kind of, you're considered kind of uh, slow. Yeah, and, and, and probably <laughs> to them, they might even characterize Southerners as rough around the edges. But oddly enough, when Northerners show up and have this more like direct, almost blunt and offensive way of speaking, we think of them as having rude. being rude and rough around the edges. It's like, mm -hmm. and rough around the edges is even a nice way of saying rude. Oh, it's a little rough around the edges. Yeah. There's the subtext is that guy's rude or that person's yeah. rude. You, yeah. Just in the South, you don't say it directly. Yeah. Nothing's direct. In the South, people are, it, people just don't say things too directly. And a lot of it does have to do with just, you know, decorum. Mm-hmm. What is not what's proper, but what is socially proper, not what what is grammatically or linguistically. Yeah, for proper. sure. For it's sure. Socially proper. Yeah. There are certain things that there's a there's a whole other grammar that applies to the southern language. Um, and it's not necessarily the appropriate grammar that you taught right. or, you know, and women are the best at it because that's how they talk to their children. And children, even though their mothers may be speaking to them in public quite nicely and saying things. Yeah. And once you grow up in a family like that, where your mother has always done that to you, you always know to start whatever she's saying, you start reading between the lines, you start going underneath the surface of that going, okay, where, what is she really telling me? Because yeah. she is not telling me this directly. If she said it directly, then she's afraid that she would look bad or abusive in public. And so mm -hmm. she can't say exactly, you know. Or that she's going to hurt your feelings. Yeah. She wants to hurt your feelings, yeah. <laughs> but she wants to do it in a nice way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is hilarious, which which is makes it worth it. I feel like those types of dialects are really attractive for writers to, to write because there's a code to it. There's a there's something more that's going on. Uh, granted, it's nice to have a character once in a while that's purely blunt. Everything that comes out of their mouth is exactly what they mean, but only if they're used in, I've, I've, at least in my case, I've found that those only work if they're used in contrast with a group of other characters who don't do that at all. So you've got the one character who whatever goes through their mind doesn't get filtered and it just comes straight out. But for everybody else, they're doing what you're talking about. They're, in order to understand what they're saying, you're going to have to read between the lines. And that's very Shakespearean. Okay. Because when Shakespeare wrote, the one character you could count on to be blunt was the fool. The town, the, the, the village idiot or the... the and yeah. he was speaking, and, and Shakespeare used the fool to teach the greatest lessons in whatever it was that he wrote. 
Oh, okay. So the village idiot would actually be uttering the the biggest world lesson. That's it. And that the and he, thereby creating some irony that makes it funny. That now makes that it funny. That made it funny. Yeah. And we as uh, because we brought that style with us, us you know the colonialist, they brought that style with them. They passed it on to us. And as people, you know, we didn't go anywhere. You know, in, in the beginning, they referred to this country as an island, you know, over on this island. And you read the old writings, they talk about this island because we were separated from the rest of the yeah. world. But because we're separated, something magical happened. We retained a lot of the original English language. And when I say original, I'm going to say probably the Elizabethan period okay. language. Okay. So then um we've we've seen it in music so it might be a little easier to explain and we also have seen it in language yeah you gave me an example in the music there was a movie called the song catcher song catcher okay is that what you were about to yes start? okay yes so what we know is when the people settled and a lot of them were scots irish who settled in the uh, appalachian area and they moved deep into the hills and did not come out they weren't influenced by any other music their language wasn't influenced. Their accent wasn't influenced. They were just learning from each other. And so it stayed the same. It was static. And once that was discovered, they realized that this was the music of the Irish. This was the music of the Scots. This was the language of the Irish and the Scots as they were when they came in. And if so un, untampered with. Untampered or, yeah. with. When you... When you go to, let's say, Nolans. Yes. Okay. That's another place with with a very, they got distinct accents throughout. And the state's not massive, but they uh, apparently, from what I've read, there are four or five different parts of the state, and there may be more, but four or five different parts where it's distinctly different um, in terms of their dialect. And Nolans collected all of them. Creole. So you have That's the what, Creole, that, you have the French. You have oh, the, yeah, right. Yeah, right. And the Irish settled thick in there. So a lot of the music and all of those things intermingled. Yeah. It's right? now this this amalgamation of all these things. Which seems original. Yeah. But it's not original. No, it's, it's like a mashup. It's like what, that's what you it. know, when you see musical artists today take a song from the sixties and mash it up with a new song. They they they're it's not it's not that it's not art, but it's not a new thing. They've taken a bunch of old things and created it something that's new i guess exactly but, but that's that's and that's happening with like that's happens with everything when you really think about it so to me for a writer to capture all of this if if uh you know if i'm i'm not a northerner but if i were going to write a northern character i would need to spend a lot of time watching and i i'm not i'm not even going to say that I am going to say that you have to either you have to hear it. Mm -hmm. You have to hear them speak. Yeah. If you don't hear them speak, then you can't ever really capture the intonation, the pauses, all of those things that are part of it. Um, it's it's just like music. There's there's a certain beat and a certain rhythm that comes with every language and that comes with every dialect in that language. There's somebody who said that. I mean, there are three main dialects in America. Um, the first one is the northern dialect. The second one is the uh, the mid. The, it's called north, the mid north or something like that. It's mm -hmm. the middle part. And then there's the southern. But in each one of those, 
there is an area. For example, there's an expression that we use, you know, uh, boy, somebody was being so ugly to me at the store today. Mm-hmm. He's so ugly. Mm-hmm. And we know what that means as Southerners. Yeah. The first In the time, North, that'd be probably confusing to them because ugly means something that's it physical means you're appearance. unattractive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the first time I said that to uh, my stepdad, he looked at me and he said, well, that's an awful thing to say because I talked about someone being ugly. Uh-huh. And I said, well, he needs to learn how he to was- act. And that made no sense to him, I'm sure. Made no sense to him. Yeah. So even, you know, when you look at those three dialects you brought up and then you stretch it out to say California, which California is an interesting one too because they've been mixed through so many different cultures. Um, And it's weird because if you look back on a lot of like whatever, Grapes of Wrath, you know, um, when you displace all of these... Okies, uh, Arkies, and Texans. Exactly. Yeah. You take them and then you put them out in Cal. Now California's got some of that accent that's taken with it. It's like you can. I'm not saying that I necessarily not- noticed it that much when I was out there, but I definitely noticed it in watching documentaries from those times and watching movies that are from those times. Uh, that people, uh, it, it is so true that even in the last hundred years you look at the last hundred years the way people spoke in the 1920s versus the way they would speak today it it has really changed and altered but there are certain pockets especially in the south that it's i mean i feel like i could watch something from back then and still look at it today the only thing that throws a wrench in it sometimes is older movies we talked about this the other night but they the actors were trained with a certain what they called i think the mid-atlantic dialect and that was a state that was a stagey thing it had nothing to do with what the stuff you're talking about all that had to do with was i suppose clarity clarity right so you can hear the actors blend you know i'll just give an example maybe it's like a cary grant type uh you know character and 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 the, the actors of that generation you can hear all of them have that that bit of of uh, stage um, style mixed in with whatever character they're playing. So if they play a character in the South, then they're going to play their version of the mixing of that mid-Atlantic dialect with the Southern draw language or, and yeah. draw and all mm-hmm. of that. So, But the really good ones, or at least the, as movies have evolved, the, the more realistic the movie, the less that that mid-Atlantic thing plays in and the more they try to go straight to the heart of where wherever they are. Well, part of uh, an actor's training, especially for stage, and, uh-huh. and you've, you've sat in drama right. classes right. before, right? Articulation is absolutely necessary. Even television yeah. acting yes. is like that. Well, and they, that was also brought up in the same thing that they were almost viewed the same way uh, because you got to especially then and and if, and if you're a stage actor now the, you got to reach the back row so you have to project and you have to be clear so that you can't just do this you know i guess marlon brando changed it for for screen actors um but but this idea of getting up there and kind of mumbling around on stage is it, it, it better the character better be spot on to where you can pick up what you need to pick up through the physicality of the character or else the audience will be confused. Right. Well, and in the early days, there were no microphones. There was yeah. no sound system. So you had to and, and the buildings were constructed in such a way that it would carry the sound to the back of the, the seating area. But you still had to project 
almost as an opera singer projects. Right. And your voice had to be good and clear to be heard on the back row. Yeah. And it didn't matter if you were a good, quote unquote, good actor in terms of being a good actor meant something different that in those days. It, it was to be a good actor. It meant you did those things really, really well. It wasn't that you were so believable and realistic as theater wasn't uh, invented to be that way. It was invented to be entertaining and it was invented to so that you could you could be and you would have to project and be able to get these ideas across and the words across or else you, you weren't really useful to them. Now, one of the things and this is interesting because we're both educators and we both teach English and I don't know, you'll have to tell me what your experience was. But when I was in college, one of the classes I had to take was a speech class beyond my mm -hmm. regular speech class which was really an articulation class uh -huh. and it was it was specifically for teachers for educators so that you would learn to speak correctly clearly slowly sounding out every especially for a texan it's hard because we swallow things we well, don't, i notice you, know. you can you have a pretty wide range with that stuff you can go to the point of speaking like you said I think you do the 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 spelling bees, don't you? Yes. So you can go from speaking as clearly as a person needs to speak to run a spelling bee to talking like an oaky from, you know, that just walks straight out of the hills or whatever, you know. And and you can and you move in and out of that. It it is an act. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I've always said that teachers are actors and a part and such a big part of that is controlling your voice. Mm -hmm and their your tone it's, yeah. it's all about all of that you know you have to be able to communicate in such a um, a complete way with your movements your tone your the words that you use yeah. the articulation if i really wanted to get my kids attention i'd use the word ain't yeah and yep. i would say it just like that I said you ain't getting away with that today and if i and i'd turn it into my oaky tone and it, and the change just the little change alone got their attention that got their attention and they knew i was upset because i had it and i it's when i was uh when i was training to be a teacher uh your dad and i had were living in the little house behind his parents house a house that we had built and we had a our porch it was up it was a house on stilts and so i was standing on the porch at that time um uncle paul your grandma's brother was visiting from California and he was uh, he was a bit of a drinker and he tended to drink in the chicken pen mm -hmm. he liked because he, he grandma didn't want him drinking in the house so he'd go out <laughs> and sit and drink with the chickens and I didn't even know he was out there that day and my brother was visiting your uncle Dave who lived in the house in front of us uh -huh. at that time and nobody had air conditioning over there at their house so I knew the windows were open and I didn't want to go down the steps I just wanted Cliff my brother Cliff to come up to where I was so I stood out on the porch and I hollered which by the way is another word that a lot of people don't yeah. use except yelled for screamed right. hollered right. Here. I hollered uh his name his name is cliff and i and it was cliff <laughs> and your uncle paul stuck his head out and he goes are you from oklahoma <laughs> and i said yes how could you know that now notice how i just said yes it was two syllables yes i don't know if you heard that yes yes and he's and he said uh, i said how could you know that and he said because you just made a two syllable made a one syllable name into two syllables yeah when i hollered it yeah and i do that all the time and i know that well and yours is already going to be a little bit mixed up because you spent a significant amount of time in three different southern states right. with three different southern dialects 
And so if any, not that anybody, not it, not just anyone's going to pick up on that, but depending on how, where you want to slide your voice on the spectrum of between those, you could potentially do that. Yeah. If you were in Arkansas, you could play to them. If you were in Oklahoma, you could play to them. If you're in Texas, you play to us. And it's pretty, it's pretty interesting how quickly a kid picks up yeah. an accent. Yeah. Think about how fast they learn a language. I mean. Yes. So at one point, your uncle Dan, um, had decided he was going to move his first wife and their two daughters to Georgia, which is where his first wife was born. Uh So they go back. They're there six weeks, maybe six weeks. When they came back, the two girls spoke like Georgia peaches. And and they did not, they didn't sound Texan at all. And you could hear it. Oh, it was crystal clear. Oh yeah. Yeah, it didn't take him long to pick it up at all. Did Uncle Dan under did he hear it or had he? Been I don't around? think he heard it. Yeah, because he was maybe with it every day. Yeah, but I, I mean, your dad and as I soon heard as you it heard immediately. It. Yeah. It was like, whoa, you know what happened? Did they but they just were Texans. That stuff. They were Texans. They were both, you know, here, born here, and but I mean, it just didn't take. Well, long. and you notice even for this podcast, the way that we're talking right now, we're trying to be very clear. We're not, but you and I both have. Sp- slid much further into the Texan drawl in different conversations and different times. It's almost like it, it becomes a different language in, in its own right. And it's a, to me, it's a point of pride. Um, what I know about language and I, and I, I don't, I think everybody, I hope everybody knows this about language. When you're talking about whether you're setting up a country or a government or you're, you're brought together by your language. Mm-hmm. That's really, it's not about your politics. It's not about your skin color. It's not about anything else. It is about your language because you have to be able to communicate with each other. And what we know is that this country is so predominantly English. Our language is English. And there'll be people who want to argue it with you. But even with all the different cultures who have come into it and all the words we've borrowed from their language, they have not really affected our language at all, right. other than to add words. Right. That's it. And it, yeah, and it's extended the English language in in terms of American English, like you said. Um, but yeah, it's it, it definitely seems like this has dominated, not because anybody, any one person had a an ulterior motive in trying to make it dominate, um, but that was the way we communicated. That's how we got, we founded ourselves that way. And so we just continued to push and push and push. And so, yeah, the, the idea now that it would uh, multicultural, we were just reading something the other day, multicultural is fine, whatever, you know, you can have all the different cultures mix in. That's America is that it is a melting pot, but it's funny uh, because the people that come here, they ultimately learn English and well, the people that move here if you really talk to them they're not sad about that <laughs> they're not they're they're no and you know okay so at the during the a certain period of time you know we always talk about what is the world language yeah and it is english yeah. because the the if you want to talk politics worldwide everybody's speaking yeah. english or they're translating into english yeah they translate the biggest factor happens to be business they're doing business in English. You want to do business with America? We're the most powerful, most, you know, we're the richest. We're all of those things. So if you want to do business with us, you're going to speak English or you yeah. have to have a translator. And, and, and I don't, you know, it's really interesting because you do hear a lot of the political stuff that, and, and that almost feels like just chatter in a way, because when you really talk to the people who are doing this stuff, 
they're not it doesn't feel like anybody's complaining about having to switch back and forth between Mm-mm. english it's like no no this is what we do because we want to make some money it's an asset um but you know when you when we, we get into talking about some of this stuff uh, the other thing i was thinking is that um when you gave that simple acronym for achieving voice it it seems like ideally, and it would smile again, right? So it's similes, metaphors, metaphors idioms. idioms. Um, lively language. Lively language. That means using specific nouns. It means using strong action verbs. Yep. And the E is? Elaboration. Elaboration. So when you, once you're able to use those, you theoretically could have a different version of smile for every character in your book or every character in your screenplay. Mm-hmm. Um, and that could be very specific to them. Hopefully it will be that so that everybody in the, in the thing Sounds. has has their own human quality. Right. Um, the funny part about language, though, is that it also, because of the dialect and because of the concept of subtext and because people don't always say exactly what they mean, it, it, the, the grand irony of language is that it's used to communicate, but so often it turns into a very... Uh, miscommunicated message. It's and very much like texting. Yes. Yes. Email even. Unless you are going to take the time to write out. And, e- and even if you do, it probably will get misinterpreted because the tone is taken out. You, you, it's stripped down. And now all you... So unless you're a really, really good writer and have a really, really good r- writing voice, people are going to hear different things, you know. And, and text talk is the worst because it it, it there's no way to if you do it the way that people text today, there's no way to decipher, you know. No, and it can certainly create what, you know, what we have here is a failure to communicate. Yes, yes. Cool right? hand loop. <laughs> um, that is so, it causes so many problems, even in this COVID-19 thing that's going on. We, the problem is, one, we a lot of people don't trust the communication device, yeah. whatever that medium is. But most of it is we don't really know how to interpret it. Yeah. And for Southerners, that's really a big deal. We're accustomed to reading between the lines. Right. And we oftentimes misread Northerners and yeah. a lot of our information. Different, different spot. Yes. And look where our information's coming from. It's coming from the North. Yeah. And that in and of itself can be something that causes a little bit of fear. A breakdown. Yeah. yeah. A little bit. Yeah. Because fear, of the, because of the mistrust, because of the emotions that get involved. And as soon as those emotions get involved, I was telling you, I was listening to a guy named Chris Voss, the FBI negotiator. And now he's gone to coaching businesses and things like that because nego- what he realized was that negotiation and hostage scenarios, whether they are, and he, he said it pretty plainly. He said that, when somebody kidnaps somebody, we don't, we want to call that like, you know, so it, they, they, it's a commodities business. That's what it is. They kidnap them because they are, they, they look at that person as a product. And so what he noticed over time was that the more he negotiated these scenarios, he realized that when he would have business deals as well, whether he was just buying a house or buying a car, it's the same negotiation. It's the same thing. It's just a different product. And so now he does all of these businesses, but he talks really one of, he, he, you know, he has a lot of these different conversations. He doesn't use the word dialect, but a lot of times it's what he's getting at and especially that he's getting at subtext. So he said, you know, the simplest thing he said, I'll never call somebody and say, Hey, you got a minute to talk. 
because immediately I've created an emotion in their mind and, 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 and or these, these chemicals get released. And he said that, that they now go, well, I might, and in their mind, they're going, I might have a minute to, a minute to talk, but do I want to talk to you? doesn't sound like I want to talk to you. <laughs> Sounds like you got something to say that I don't want to hear. So what he does is he'll go, hey, did I catch you at a bad time? And then just the, and he said, just the, the brain's way of interpreting a person's ability to say no. If, did, if I say, did I catch you at a bad time? And you go, no. Now you've said no, using Doors the open. word no, means that you have the power. You could have said yes, but you you now have the power because you were able to tell me no to something I requested. You're in control. And I've made you feel that way by asking you that. And you saying no means, okay, well, we can have a little talk and you don't feel like I'm gonna come after you about anything. And he said, that's just, that's just the opening the door part of it. And he said, you know, you really, he said, I know most people when they're negotiating don't want to hear no, but if you set it up right, you actually do want to hear no. You want the other person to feel like they can say no and they don't, then they're not hurting anything. Um, and he said, honestly, you don't know if you, people aren't going to say yes. He goes, you'd be amazed at what people won't say a clear yes to. Like if, if, if you're wearing, um, you know, security guard clothes and I ask you if you're a security guard, you might not say yes. Because yes, interpret it's interpreted as you just committed to something or this is leading somewhere and I don't know where it's going and I don't like where I not knowing where it's going so so your dad's the master of that right right he, the two words he rarely uses are yes and no. oh I know and, and I know it dri has driven you nuts for years yeah. he, he doesn't ever say a straight yes or no I and I I a lot of times attribute that to his southern roots too but but also it always leaves him an out it leaves him an out it doesn't give him make him commit to anything that's definite this way or that. And that's how dialect can be used, especially in terms of writing, especially because we know that scenes play better when there is some underlying conflict or underlying uncertainty or underlying fear. Uh, and you can use the words to try to you know, tickle that, you know? Well, it certainly keeps interest yeah. going in the, in the audience. Because the audience go, well, what does he mean by that? Or what yeah. does she mean by It's a by puzzle. That? Yeah, it's a puzzle. They want to figure it out. And if everything's a puzzle, it, it the brain, what we know about the brain and, the, and just through the research now that we have where we can actually look at how the brain fires when certain things happen, anytime you're faced with an unknown, the brain fires quickly. Yeah. And it's it's alive and active. If that's why when a teacher teaches, if that teacher is giving all of the information yeah. without ever baiting them or asking a question, not just a yes, no question, but a question that could have any answer that makes it, but it has to make them think. Whenever that teacher has the ability to do that, kids will learn and they will remember because their brains are firing. I had a kid, uh, he's actually in your class, Sean, um, what was, he became a doctor. What was Sean? Sean name? Allen. Sean Allen. Sean Allen. Was, he's a psychologist. Oh. Psychiatrist. Well, oh, he's a psychiatrist, actually. Okay, well, then this yeah. is going to be perfect. I didn't know that's what he had become. Yeah. And that's cool. Uh, but what he, he and his wife both. Can you imagine that household? <laughs> no, I can't imagine being their kids. So um, there was a situation I can't remember. There was something going on at the school and I had 
my students write letters to the school board giving their opinions, nobody to ask for their opinions, but I said, look, if you really don't like this, I don't even know what it was. I said, if you don't like I it. Remember the, I remember it, yeah. there was. And he started his letter with, it's about damn time that somebody asked our opinion. I remember that, yeah. And the fact that he put, I, I sent it back to him and I said, you're going to have to take the word out. <laughs> Did he take it out? He changed it. Darn. It's about darn time. Well, and he, and he needed something in there to be able to, because that's a great opener. That Wouldn't you agree? That's probably a great sure. opening line. You know, His it's letter just got more reads than anybody's. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing too. And there's his voice right there, right that's out it. of the gates. You know who you're, who you're dealing with. Um, and that's the other thing that, that, uh, that the negotiator was talking about. He's saying people... People, you know, can communicate better when you are predictable. Um, in other words, if if you know what to expect from me, then you're not going to be afraid of of not knowing where this is going. And is the the more that I can be predictable in a negotiation, the the smarter you are because your brain. What and this was a great way of saying. It, he said, if you're afraid of something you don't see coming then your brain starts making these erratic choices in the moment and you're not as smart as you ordinarily would be. Mm -hmm. But I can help you be smarter if I'm predictable to you. And I'm not saying this necessarily applies to the writing piece because sometimes you want to set those scenarios up where they're actually messing this this up. Right. But it's interesting to listen to somebody who did it and is is has found these ways of, and he and he said, you know, like the the, the subtext of, you're right, you're right, you're right. The subtext to that means leave me alone. I'm done talking, right? But if I say that's right, if you say something and I res respond with that's right, now you can see that I probably agree with you. Do you know what the new term is? And I've thought about this a lot in the last, I don't know, last year. Yep. Yep. And that's even by text, right? Yep. If somebody says, yep, they totally agree with you. Yep. And that's just a simple, we can go on now. We don't need to talk about this anymore. Yep. Right, right. And I and I noticed that in tech, and that's a text talk thing too, because people, the idea of texting is to talk shorter, uh, which isn't great. But in those cases, if something's absolutely agreed upon, yep, move on. Let's move on. Yep. And, and that is really, and so that takes me to this next part of just the whole story of language Whenever you want a language to live and you want it to thrive, then it the people who have it have to use it yeah. as their mother tongue. And people don't talk about the mother tongue much. But the mother tongue is the is the language that you spoke first, whatever that was. As long as people have a language as their mother tongue, then it will survive. Let's take uh, the Irish language, for example because they were dominated by so many different people, especially the English, mm -hmm. they typically speak English. However, they still have this great need to be connected to their, their cultural roots. And so now it is required in Ireland, that, and I don't know about Northern Ireland, but in the other parts, yep. uh, it is required that all students in school be bilingual and their second language will now be Gaelic. So they are, and I didn't realize that that was the case. I knew that Gaelic had had largely it, it had started to disappear, right? So they're really making an effort to bring it back. They really want to bring it back, and they are bringing it back. And when you go there, when Denise and I went, mm -hmm. um, all of their signs are in two languages. Ah, in two because they're trying to preserve that which 
Remember we said earlier that a language is what brings people together? Right. And the Irish people are very clannish. And I'm saying that because I, you know, when you're a descendant of Irish people, the clan, the family is the most important thing. And you you have certain expectations of your family members and they have a certain responsibility to that family. And that is a cultural thing. And you're not going to find that in every culture. No, but it is true of the Irish. They have it in, in the, yeah. And I notice it with the Mexican people. Yes. It's very much, um, and that's, I, I suspect that's why, uh, you know, they, they, I was listening to, this was a totally random thought, but you just brought it up. I was listening to an interview with Jim Morrison of the Doors and he had Irish roots and the, and the guy giving the interview was Jewish. And they kind of were button heads throughout the midst of it but then they both called it out they said you know this is kind of the reason why we're having a little bit of a hard time is that jewish people and irish people haven't always gotten along and and it's because there's a difference in mentality and and morrison brought it up he said no i know he said and they, they eventually they worked their way around it and got through the interview and it was a good interview but um but it was just like this natural thing that kind of spurred up and then morrison said by contrast he noticed with the mexican people though he really had a specific fond natural liking for those people in general it was just something they had in common the other thing they had in common was that they all they also had it in them to fight both of them and so it was a mutual respect there <laughs> and so you know you see those little things and and there's so so many little nuanced details of going into writing a character uh but the further you can go down that and have it in your mind as the writer i think the better off that, that you will be and, and the more real a character might feel on the page it's like anything that you do and let's let's put it this way let's say you want to rewire your house now you have a choice you could call in a professional who has spent years learning to do that. Or you could do it yourself. Chances are, if you do it yourself, you're going to mess it up because you haven't done the research. The same is true of the character. Just because you know someone who is Jewish yep. or you know someone who is Roman Catholic yep. or you know someone who is Northern doesn't mean you know how to write that character. And if you start trying, you're going to inevitably create a cliche right out of the gates that probably the kind of cliche that causes political stir between people saying you just stereotype. That's it. Because you haven't tapped into the nuance of a human being or a culture or any of the any of that. Right. So just as you said earlier that I have um, my particular manner of speech and when I fall into my natural speaking voice mm -hmm. not the one i use to teach yeah. or the one i use to or speak even what publicly you use, or right? what i'm doing right now that the just the the fact that i said doing instead mm -hmm. of doing mm -hmm. if i'm cooking in the kitchen i'm cooking i'm doing it i'm gonna do it i'm fixing to do it all of those things are part of who i am in my mother tongue ah there you go there came that's full circle okay right and it's good to know when to be able to turn that on and turn that off if you're trying to communicate something. You need to be able to move right. up and down the ladder, right. depending on the circle you're in. If you, it's 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 kind of like knowing uh, proper table etiquette. Yeah. Right. There is nothing that sticks out more than a a person who doesn't know how to put a napkin on their laps properly, 
I mean, when you watch, okay, you watch Andy Griffith, you can tell which ones are a little more refined. Napkin goes on the lap. The Darlins. <laughs> yeah. Right? And their name's Darlings. Yeah. But the, the Darlins, the Darlins show up. They're the hillbillies. They tuck theirs in right into their collar. <laughs> right? So what you... And just you write something like that on a page and immediately the reader, reader will know, oh, they're not quite refined. Right. I see. Where are they from? And then you start to learn a little. And it, and it's it it, it it especially in a screenplay. You know, a screenplay is not going to be perfect. You know, once you have an actor, that actor's going to do something with it. Hopefully, they they enhance what you've written, not draw pull away mm -hmm. from it. But but if you've got enough on the page like that, those little details help and make all the difference for an actor to be able to get in there and do what they need to do for the audience to be able to get this thing right, you know, to understand it. For example, in Steinbeck's Cannery Row. Yeah. Well, she, he's a writer. <laughs> well, and so the the lead character takes the lead female character to dinner, um, and she really is rough around the edges. She does not have social graces. She doesn't know how to go to a fine restaurant. So she, when Steinbeck wrote that, he has her character described as doing everything just a little bit behind him. Just watching what he's she doing. watched him. And copying him. Copying and trying him. to do it in time. But and yeah, no, that's, that's really, and think about how many times that happens when you don't know what you're doing. You just try to fall in line quietly. You know, if you play, if you play music, um, if you don't know the song that everybody's playing, but maybe you can try to figure it out. You start quietly playing your guitar to try to keep up with what they're doing. You don't want to draw attention to it, but you want to try to get in there and keep up. But you got to figure it out first. And it right. takes, you know, it takes takes some time. Well, it's like your Aunt Jan. She used to play, <laughs> she used to play the violin. Yeah. <laughs> she didn't really practice that much. And <laughs> I can no, remember. No lesson, self-taught. Right. Right. So we went to her first concert and I mean, everybody's playing together, so there's no way to know. I mean, it appeared by watching her bow that she was doing With everything perfectly. Did it turn out she wasn't playing She at had all? never even put the strings on the violin. <laughs> you know, she'd never touched the bow to the strings. So it was like, whoa. <laughs> she told me that secretly. She didn't but tell. But everybody else went, hey, nice job, yeah. Jan. <laughs> Just follow the other bows. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, it's funny. If you... So, all right. So, I can't recall. There was a couple of other things I was gonna say, but if you do, you haven't. Do you have some more stuff that you were gonna bring up? Well, there are a couple of things that I I wanted to. Um, I just wanted to stress this about writers in general. Okay, sounds like you're headed in the same. I was gonna ask you if you had to say three things. Okay, so, we always end with a, a top three. If you had to say three things about writing a, in a in a real dialect or writer writers in okay. general, any what are the three most important things that you would, you know put on a, a billboard if you could try to use that billboard to reach writers all right three things to reach writers mm -hmm. in terms of achieving voice yeah and if it's going away from what you had there go ahead and go with what you have okay well i can tell you that i think the three most important things that you when you're trying to achieve dialect you need to study okay what i would call said, either articulation or enunciation how do they actually say the words how do they do it and, and that takes hours i mean you'd have to does. listen and it can't and i don't think you can listen to to watch movies unless the movie really nailed it but but you need to listen to real people yeah real real interviews or like travels with charlie john steinbeck yeah. decided i'm just going to travel the country and listen to 
the people from the you country talk. Uh, one of the, in for us in the South, probably the best place to uh, hang out if you really want to learn how Northerners talk, what we call snowbirds, <laughs> you could go to an RV park uh-huh. in the winter. Yeah. And those people winter get Texans. together. Yes, those winter Texans, the snowbirds, you get together with them and you're going to really absorb it. You have to just be, you have to spend time with them. Yep. And bars are a place where you can do that too. Sure. Because find the, or church, where are people drawn? They're drawn to certain community areas. And if you can go there. Well, Steinbeck was doing that. He was going yes. to church all across the country while and he was on And campgrounds. Yep. Both, both of those things exactly. Yes. And there's some incredible dialogue in that. I imagine he wrote it just as it was said. I'm sure he didn't invent sure. it. I bet it was exactly the conversation he had. And okay, so a side note to that is when a writer, and I I don't know how to express this any more simply or clearly than to just simply say, writers must be masters of mechanics. Because when you write a word, there is a way, and Mark Twain was a master at it. Oh, sure. There is a way to write that word with the diacritical marks or whatever you need to, or the the punctuation to make that word look the way you want. Pull in a Ben Franklin. He always wrote the way things sound because he was a horrible speller. Uh He tried to convince Noah Webster that we need to just change all this spelling. (laughs) And he wrote a long letter and he and Webster were on the opposite sides of it. And Webster did finally concede a few things. That's why we don't spell favor F-A-V-O-U-R. We drop. We still can. It's still considered a legal, so-called yeah. legal spelling. But, but if I see that, it's weird. I, if I see that, I immediately take it at, in European. context that it's European, or maybe it was written at the very early days of of the American, uh, you know, yeah. you know, of, of them forging the country. Even punctuation, um, when you the period, and you can always tell people who were educated at a certain time period, or if they were educated by a person who learned the traditional British way, the period with quotation marks, regardless, goes inside. Okay. Okay. In American writing. Right. In American writing. That was something that I, yeah. yeah. And you'll see it, you'll see it written different ways all the time, but, and and either one can be correct, but if you're, if you've asked someone to write an American standard English, then that's the one you do. So the second area then is pronunciation. And the pronunciation is a whole lot, again, knowing how to read the phonetic spelling of a word. I'm, it used to be standard that English teachers had to take the class on understanding that. How do you read it? What is a diacritical mark? It's, well, you know, an accent or it's the schwa or it's whatever mm-hmm. those those markings are those those mystical markings those things that go oh what is that (laughs) for the pronunciation and now with with the internet people just hit that little microphone thing or the speaker right and it it says the word for you and then you replicate it uh the third thing definitely is know the vocabulary of an area and that doesn't mean just their words that means all of their phrases for example let me just let me just give you a few um if somebody calls, if you call it a spigot, you're from the south. What what would you call it? Otherwise, a faucet. It's a faucet up north. Yeah. If you call it a coke, you're from the south. Uh huh. It's a soda or, or a pop, pop up there, right? Uh, shoot the breeze. 
we know what that means, yes. but not everybody else Shoot does. the breeze. Shoot the breeze. Somebody else, I've heard it said another way, and I don't know if this is a different part of the country, but they called it chewing the fat. I heard chewing some people fat. call that chewing said, the fat. Yeah, that's said here as well. Um, speak of the devil. Um, this one, more than Carter's has little pills. I, I, I okay. Was that a liver pill from the it old days? It was a liver days? pill. And people, people in the South knew what it was. Carter was the company that made it. And everybody understood because it was a little bitty bottle, but in it were teeny tiny pills and there were tons of them in there. Yeah. And so I, I used to I've heard another one. He drunkard and Cooter Brown. And I think I, I, I ended up I was like, who the heck is Cooter? I remember being a kid thinking, what? Who? What is that? And that's even that's a more modern expression. OK, that's a more, because Cooter Brown, I think, was either a person or at least a legendary person in yeah. some area and was said to have always been drunk. And that that was the right. So then when you look at things like matter than a wet hen, matter than a wet hen. And if you've never had a chicken, you don't know what that means. It came from something. But right. it you, came from yeah. that. When you get them wet, that's that's what happens. Yeah. Heavens to Betsy. Oh, I haven't heard that right? one in a while. Hush your mouth. <laughs> Too big for his britches. She's got gumption. That word gumption is one that it's, isn't used. You every don't time. hear it. And one you probably haven't heard that I grew up hearing all the time. If so, and Grandma used it and your nanny used it. I swan. Whoa, no, I haven't heard that. I swan. That means I swear. But, I, it sounds like that you use the same inflection of I swear, but why I But it why comes I swan? from the swanee. I, well, I swanee. It had to do with the river, and it oh. came from that area in the south. So then my mom always said, I swan. And barking up the wrong tree, that's I, yeah. a hunting term. That is. Right? Uh, get the short end of the stick, throw a hissy fit. Holler at me, slow as molasses in wintertime. Uh, back in the day, spit an image of. <laughs> spit an image. Why a spit an image? I never, I know what it means, but it means you look like so Exactly and so. like. But, but why spit an image? I don't know the etymology. So again, going back and finding those origins, and sometimes we know where they, we, yeah. we can track, we can track it, but sometimes we don't have any idea. Well, the funny part about it is generation to generation will use them but they don't know what they mean anymore and they don't really care because they know what they mean right now. They don't know the etymology of it or the history of it, right. but they, they've been using it. It's just a thing that gets said, you know. And they'll change it. Yeah. You know, uh, cattywampus. Yeah, that's another one. In some places, it's kitty wampus <laughs> or catty corner. Yeah. Or whatever, you know, kitty well, corner. Well, all we all are. know those people who have their own versions of it. Like Uncle Dan, for whatever reason, I think he does it on purpose sometimes, but... Uh, I'm gonna let him listen to this, but but uh, I've heard him call a sea-doo a ski-doo. It technically, I understand. I know exactly what he's talking about. I know what he's saying. I know it's not called a ski-doo though. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is funny. The other night when Art was here, yeah, I said, and it it occurred to me when I said it that he did. He looked at me funny, and I think he thought I. I had a, a language faux pas or something because I said creature. Oh, rather than creature? And creature, your dad and I say it all the time because Ernest T. Bass oh. on Andy Griffith always says, well, I'm not a creature. <laughs> and he's saying creature, but he pronounced that's, that's just the way he said That's it, yeah. the way the people from that from South Carolina has its own oh I, yeah I've been there there is an island and I read about this just recently and I didn't know have you been to the island is called uh, Ocracoke no the Ocracoke Brogue is and I'm going to after we 
finish here, I'm going to actually see if I can hear what that sounds like. Okay. They said it's so different that you cannot really understand them. Well, wasn't it, you remember in Snatch, the movie? Mm, yes. The yes. Is it the Pikeys? The, yes, the, they, same thing. They you Just these gypsy guys that they have their own language. And they've, they've morphed a language into their own village kind of language. And you just have a really hard time understanding them if you're not part of it. Like Ebonics. Yeah. And it's not that these... And, and okay, so here's an interesting... I wonder how that was written on the page, by the way, for, for Snap. I've never read the screenplay, but I wonder if he wrote it on the page. Or, or he, he just assigned that. Assigned you have to it. sound like this. Probably so. I don't know. But it is interesting because there there's this um, noted linguist, and he said, here's what he has discovered. He said that if a Brit comes to America, he will understand every single person, regardless of the dialect. He'll know what they're. He'll, he'll he will have no problem. Why? Because we have a standard English okay. that is at the root of their language. However, if Americans go to England, you will not understand everything they say. Okay. Yeah. One of the words that your grandpa said one time, I nearly passed out. He said to your grandma, "Hey." Pass me that fag. Oh, cigarette. I did. I I only. I had <laughs> but just, yeah, we just never call that. that no, year. I That's didn't an, even know what that was, and I thought, what? <laughs> what did you say? <laughs> <laughs> Should we call it that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So when we talk, and I guess you know, this is just really scratching the surface of all of this stuff. But but research being your biggest one probably is just, you got to listen to how that person talks if, if you're trying otherwise if you're not trying to write a dialect which I, I don't know I mean if you're writing from a specific part of the country I think the dialect has to be there for it to work but if you're not writing from a particular say it's not at such a particular place or let's say that you are writing from a particular place but maybe you intend for this piece of writing to to be edited later by somebody who's from that or to be helped by somebody who's from that then would you just write it kind of just straight and and then let somebody how would you deal with that yeah and, and i think sometimes just for the sake of the if, if it's a script and you're writing this for the sake of an actor then then that leaves it up to the actor you got to get the actor that, the actor brings that to the table now the, um, one of the things that I've learned, and I've shared this with you before, I was in, uh, I was sitting in my um, Sunday school class, and there was a gentleman who was teaching the class, and he was also the lead singer for the church choir. And he was very, very good. The guy could sing. And his range was amazing. And I don't know, he said something. He said, let's just sing a, a, a hymn before we start class. And I started giggling. And he said, what's the matter? And I said, well, I'll be singing pretty low because I don't know how to sing. He, uh -huh. goes, he goes, everybody knows how to sing. And I said, well, I, let me put it differently. I sing badly. And he goes, I can fix that. And I said, I started laughing. I said, I don't think so. And he said, I can watch. And he got up and he came around and he put his. Oh, yeah, you were saying he that. put his hand over my ear and covered my ear. And then in my other ear, he said he, he just hummed a note and he said, I want you to duplicate the note. So he hummed the note and I duplicated it. So you, I could, I you could said, and I, you had me messing with this, but if I, if I was remembering right, it, it 
amplifies what you're hearing in your own it, it amplifies your voice okay and then you can make it match okay and that's so, why you said that singing in the shower might actually be a thing that it allows you to at, sound better yes yes yeah. so my thought was that if you were attempting to master let's say an accent or especially the accent mm -hmm. to get the right tone to get it just right if you had a, a recording of a person who was doing that and you could hear it and you could cup your ear and then you just try to say it with him exactly the way you do it. You know, Ben Franklin did that as a writer. He was a horrible writer, even though he's in the printing business. He didn't like the way he wrote. He thought he was a terrible writer. So, he, and he, he knew something about brain research then that he just understood. He that, just understood it, that a brain learns in patterns. Uh -huh. And if you can learn the pattern of something, then it becomes part of who you are. And then you, if you need it, you can tap into it. Just the, like the way I can speak formal English or I can drop down into, into my okie talk mm -hmm. if I want to. And But it's about the patterns. So if you could master the pattern, when he did it with the writing, he took the greatest writers of all time and he would just sit for hours, Benjamin Franklin, and write, rewrite, and write, rewrite their stuff yeah, so that his brain picked up on that tone. You know, that. there's another writer that did that, a writer I like a lot, his name's Hunter S. Thompson, and he, uh, he would retype entire books that he loved, entire, the entire thing, word for word comma for comma period for period and he said that he felt like it made him a much better writer along yes. the way so that's why it, when you know when you teach kids writing or anybody writing the first thing you tell them is read the good writers yeah yeah read, read the them. good writers okay so there's maybe number three yes and I know so we could obviously talk for many more hours on this there's so much more to be said uh we're longer than ever but that's good because we were talking we said we were going to do a, a deep dive into it so hopefully for some of you listening um if you intend we've had some questions about specific writing things so here's your first first one of these that digs into it so i hope it's helpful okay. thanks mom yeah thank you this has been fun All nobody right. ever asks me to talk about this stuff anymore <laughs> well we'll have to do it we'll have to do a follow-up okay sounds right. good